right in your eyes. All I see are a bunch of trashy daydreams. Hello everyone, welcome to Wake Island. I'm your host, Paul Kay. David's still in hiatus, so no intro for this one. David, I hope you're doing well at the silent retreat in Sedona. Please bring us back some of that tranquility. In this episode with Jared Kobach, we get into the mythology of the Zodiac Killer and the zeitgeist surrounding the late 60s of San Francisco, all of which he meticulously details in his first book of his Zodiac Killer series, Motor Spirit. We also investigate a suspect who Jared believes could definitively be the Zodiac Killer. And I have to say, this scenario that he comes up with after years of meticulous research, all of which is detailed in How to Find a Zodiac Killer, the second book in this series, is the most salient case for who this person could be. I think this episode is essential for true crime fans who have ever had any kind of interest in who the Zodiac Killer could be and the mythology behind his motivations. We also get into Jarrett's unique path to book publishing and what it was like when he met William Burroughs in high school. Jarrett Kobach is a Turkish-American writer living in California. His novel, I Hate the Internet, was an international bestseller, translated into nine languages and published in 12 countries. His other work include Ada, Do Everything Wrong, Only Americans Burn in Hell, and The Future Won't Be Long. Far ranging doesn't even begin to accurately describe where this episode goes. So sit back and enjoy. Here it is, our conversation with Jarrett Kobeck. I am curious though, as somebody that's, you know, partially a first generation American, born in Massachusetts on the East Coast. You're born in 1980, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Which I think is like a bit of a generational cusp between Gen X and millennial. So I'm just dying to know, like, what space did Zodiac Killer occupy in your mind when you were growing up? I mean, I had never even heard of it until I was in college. And then I bought Graysmith's book, which is a complicated book because it's factually it's kind of a disaster and I actually am really sympathetic to him because I think structurally in 1985 no one was going to be able to write something that wasn't that much of a disaster but even still it's pretty disaster <laughs> disastrous um and he but the thing about that book is all of the factual flaws help like, it's a great book, you know, like, it's a really amazing kind of pulp fever heat book. That they you, help. Like, did yeah. you have to unlearn some of what you had read in that book that you kind of already assumed to be a fictional pulp? No, I mean, I knew I knew the book had problems. But when I was doing Motor Spirit, the idea was. So when I wrote Ada, one of the things that I learned, which is really an important point is when you read interviews with people who knew Muhammad Atta 
which wasn't even the name he went by until he came to the US, but for the sake of clarity, Muhammad Atta, when you read interviews with people who knew him that were conducted shortly after 9-11, that's a recognizable person, right? Right. When, when you go even six months into the future, a year into the future, five years into the future, people aren't talking about the person they knew. They're talking about the perception they had of the person that they knew, which has now been profoundly influenced by that person being at the center of just relentless media coverage, right? Like human memory is porous, media coverage seeps in and it becomes the story. Uh, so with Zodiac, when I started doing what became Motor Spirit, the idea was go as far back to original sources as you can and do not rely on anything anyone didn't say in the exact moment, unless, you know, and there's a handful of exceptions to that, but they're pretty much marked out as, well, this is something someone said in, I don't know, 1999, right? Um, and the thing is, if you just read the original news coverage and you read the police reports, which all of them are available except the SFPDs, um, it's a very, very different story. And so you just sort of work, or not a different story, it's just you can see that the Zodiac that people are talking about after Gray Smith's book has very, very little to do with the Zodiac that people were interacting with in 1969 or 1970 or even 1977. And as long as you really stick to the original material, that story is not unclear, right? Um, a, a lot of the lack of clarity comes with Gray Smith's book, which gets published in a you know in the middle of a satanic panic, which then sort of spawns endless derivative media, um, and each time there's a post Gray Smith iteration, the story changes and some of that stuff, you know, some of that stuff uh, sticks forever. Some of it doesn't, but there is an actual story like there usually is. And where you find it is in documents that are original documents. I think part of what's really interesting about the larger project is that you can do both, right? That you can look at the way it's mythologized, you know, through the 80s and the satanic panic, through the early internet, through the Fincher movie, you know, all of that is in your project, but then right. you can also go back to the beginning and say, you know, what did it look like before this mythology was right. set in stone? Or, you know, what was Atta like before 9-11 or before we understood what that meant, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that is a huge part of the story is, how, you know, like the original idea of the book was sort of to write about this guy, Richard Gajkowski, who the internet had identified as Zodiac and use Gajkowski to examine the phenomenology 
of Zodiac and use that phenomenology to really write about an 11 year moment in California. Um, so once you're, you know, like once you know that you're working mostly about the phenomenology, that's a very different way to do it. And it's almost like the reason to get back to the original sources is partly because the phenomenology and, and the mythology after the fact is so interesting, but also right. so, mis so misleading, right? Yeah, and also I have a problem where it annoys me if I don't, like if mm -hmm. I really start thinking about something and I don't know what the hell happened, um, it drives me crazy, you know? Um, and, you know, you start to get into this really sort of weird space of like, are these documents, say the original documents, which I'm working off of, are these, you know, clearly these are not full encapsulations of anything that happened. These are summaries. Um, and, but you can tell they're easy. It's easier with stuff like that to tell what's going on because these aren't people laboring with 40 years of a kind of, you know, I sort of think of Zodiac as like this working class mythopoesis that is um, responsive to the pressures of California or the West Coast. Um, and, you know, like the people who were alive in 1969, that body of myth didn't exist. So even if those papers or those police reports aren't entirely accurate summary of everything that happened by virtue of the fact that they never could be. It's still people who aren't, you know, it's still not people coming to it after they've seen Fincher's film. Right. And people, you know, maybe to lay out like some California psychogeography, you know, I think it's interesting the way you talk about Zodiac you know, being associated with San Francisco geographically and kind of subliminally and spiritually versus Manson and his connection to LA, right? And the way that these two mm -hmm. figures kind of exist at the same moment and were almost conflated, I think at one point, right? And then obviously uh, ended up following totally different yeah. trajectories. But how, how is the San Francisco state of mind in say 69 going into the 70s different from what was going on in LA and how does Zodiac encapsulate San Francisco in particular? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about how baked into the mythology of San Francisco Zodiac is, Zodiac only killed one person, only killed one person in San Francisco. Most of these crimes happened somewhere else, right? But the letters, by with the exception of one let the one of the very first letters, they all mostly happened in the San Francisco press. Um, and you know, San Francisco in 69 was insane. It was a really <laughs> insane place where the summer of love, which happened in 67. It, basically, the summer of love had was over before it even started. So the summer of love is this kind of media event, somewhat from San Francisco, but really imposed from without just being like, yeah, every all the beautiful people are in San Francisco. All the beautiful people are there. They're 
having this kind of new American life, spirituality. They're all on drugs. Love is free. The graphic design is phenomenal, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The reality of it is there was a guy named um, Nicholas von Hoffman who wrote a book that is a collection of essays, I think, that were syndicated. I can't remember where. Um, he wrote a who he lived in the hate in 67. And his dispatches, which are just the whole summer long, it's just horrifying. You know, it's a book about what happens when a hundred thousand people who don't have any real means of support in every sense of that word descend on a neighborhood that probably should be housing about 20,000 people. And they're all doing a lot of really mind altering drugs. Um, by the time you get to 69, so that's in 67, which is supposed to be, you know, a golden age, right? Like it's already a disaster. 69 is two years later and the drugs have gotten more severe. There's a lot more speed. Um, and there's just a general sense of like something has curdled. Whatever this originally was, say in 66, where it's a bunch of wild kids, now it's something very, very, very different. And it's really, really dark and it's really dangerous. So, something like Zodiac in that context, and, and by Zodiac, I mean the killings, but also the letters, primarily the letters, that makes sense <laughs> in San Francisco because it's a, it's a city of people who have just gone through about two years of totally unimaginable things happening and going pretty badly. Um, which is, you know, it's a different history of the hippie movement than what I think people usually think about. But it's totally clear that it had really turned into a kind of misery by 69. And all of it is stuff that prior to, say, 66, mostly was unthinkable happening in about a two to three year period. So if you've got a guy killing people and sending in ciphers and writing really strange letters, th this, is the, this is the city that is the most primed for whatever the hell this is. Right, and maybe the way you, know, that, that you describe him as kind of like a doofus dad, right? Or like a counter yeah. counterculture kind of character. Like in a way, you know, from what you're saying, it sounds like he's part of what's interesting about him is he's a rebuke to the culture of San Francisco, but also this kind of dark example of it. Yeah. Both at the same time. I mean, I think that's the weird, that's the thing that I think no one else really identified, but that motor spirit has quite a bit of, right. Which is this idea that, you know, because when people were seeing these letters, don't forget all of this is new. So if Zodiac is making occasional references to the counterculture it's not as hokey as it kind of seems now like there's one card where he's like 
writing about how he's going to do his thing, which, I mean, this is so fallen out of the cultural memory, but this was sort of, you know, this was one of these phrases that emerged in the counterculture and then very, very quickly as it filtered into the wider culture, you know, hippies had to sort of abandon it. Um, and what you see in some of the Zodiac letters is someone who, in my opinion, right, what you see is someone who is clearly paying attention to the counterculture, but also is clearly not part of it. Um, and so what it kind of feels, and like, you know, the trade name of Zodiac is a really good example of this, because people have spent decades trying to come up with some explanation of why this guy would call himself Zodiac. The thing is, if you go and you look at any newspaper, practically in California, and you go through each page in that period, it's it, Zodiac is like the most debased word because, because there's been this explosion of spirituality, this new American refocus on I think what we would now call the new age and this is trickled down into normal people's lives so every single day the chronicle will well maybe not every single day but frequently at least once a week the chronicle will be selling like you know there'll be ads for what then probably would have been considered five and dime stores or department stores being like hey, we've got your Zodiac uh, shop glasses. We've got your Zodiac, your Zodiac suits. We've got your Zodiac posters. We've got all this cheap Zodiac merchandise, um, which means, you know, like at the time, the word was kind of omnipresent because astrology was omnipresent, but it was omnipresent as a really debased product you know and like that's the kind that's the kind of thing like when you're selling zodiac shop glasses you're not selling them to kids on the hate who probably don't even drink right you're selling them to the parents of those kids who know that something has changed in the culture but are not at the cusp of that change Right. And they're torn between wanting to punish it and wanting to get in on it. Exactly. Right. And I mean, this is the height of a certain kind of, this is when American capitalism is working its best, right? Not for everyone, but, you know, for the parents of the kids who ended up as hippies in the hate. Yeah, it's working really well for them. So what what do you do if Amer if like American capitalism is something that you really buy into? and there's something new, you buy it. Right, well, it's like buying into it and buying it almost- Exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I apologize for the, the double use of buy in that sentence. So. <laughs> it's, it's inevitable. I mean, it's sort of the beauty and horror of America, I feel like, you know, of capitalistic America is that it can just absorb anything, right? It can yeah, generate right. wild and like really out there things. Yeah, and like by, by 69, so like in 67, and 66. The best way to think about that is like, there are a bunch of people who are doing posters for the family dog and for 
the Fillmore, right? And these posters are clearly acid and uh, weed-inspired posters. The best of the artists is a guy named Victor Moscoso, who would famously later become a contributor to Zap Comics. Um, but these posters literally don't look like anything anyone has ever done in the history of graphic design, right? Maybe there's a little bit of an Art Nouveau influence, but basically not really. Anyth like These are totally new. This is like essentially the first commercial drug art, right? By, and you know, like these, these things hit with this kind of incredible power because they're totally new. By the time you get to about 1970 or 1971, every single advertising advertisement for like vacuum cleaners looks like those posters. And that is sort of the process that is going on in the moment. Like he seems like a, a prototype figure for the internet. And what I like about your book is that you write it in third person perspective, which I think takes it out of this. Well, wait, 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 let me pause you. Mm. We're talking about Zodiac. You were yeah. talking about door. And I would suggest that there's a difference. Yeah, maybe get yes. into that. And even Zodiac versus the Zodiac. That might be a key. A yeah. Key okay. to break it down. Good. Yeah. Okay. Good point. So before we get to door, I definitely just want to get more into the books because what I liked about how you wrote Motor City and how you, you know, because you wrote it in third person, it takes it out of this realm of being a procedural true crime book, which is, I have to say, like for me, the Zodiac, he was somebody I was aware of in the 90s. And you right. write about his, this uh, Geraldo segment that I actually somewhat vaguely remember seeing <laughs> as a kid that was like very into serial killers. Cause I mean, I'm right. the same age as you. So like Dahmer was a big part of my childhood and Ted Bundy. And I just remember these figures. I mean, they yeah. were like on the same level to me as Freddy Krueger or something like that. But sure. I have to say, I've never read or seen anything that put this into a literary context. Like I always saw the Zodiac as like Star Trek or something. You right. know what I mean? Like it right. seems like this expansive, crazy fucking like maniacal killer and ciphers. And yeah. there's the aesthetics of it are so incredible. But then you start reading about it and you're like, damn, I'm not getting anywhere with this. This is just like about media but i do like that you situated him in this specific place in this zeitgeist and and i don't think you mention it but he really represents some sort of cusp between the 60s and the 70s because to have something this potent and this um self-aware and violent happen and then be completely washed away the following year by charles manson is kind of a crazy like one two step for american culture right. so i'm curious like did that always seem apparent to you like before you got into the project no no, no. i mean <laughs> this is this is the virtue of going back and reading original newspapers right um zodiac's first cipher gets solved by it gets solved by this married couple i think in salinas california he is a school teacher i cannot remember if she had a job and what has apparently later come out is that 
she did most of the work or the lion's share of the work, but that when they decide to go to the press, they're, they were like, well, we'll let him handle this. Um, they solve that. And the Chronicle confirms the first solution to the cipher on April 9th, 9th yeah, April 9th, 1969. Uh, if you just see a clipping of that from the Chronicle or when it gets picked up, by every other news organization in America, you miss the main story, which is that happens the same day that the entire country finds out that Sharon Tate is dead. And that is like, that should be Zodiac's big moment, right? Like, here's a killer who says he has killed three people, shot four. He sent us this cipher. It took a week to solve. Here's the mystery revealed. That's like a perfect media narrative. But Sharon Tate is dead, <laughs> right? And right. like- And she's beautiful and, and iconic. She's, she's, she's beautiful. She's married to the most successful director in the world. She and her friends with a, with a baked in occult possibility, right? Yeah, yeah, and she's you know her friends are dead with her. The murderers butchered them. They had, took their blood and like wrote "pig" on the front door. What that essentially means is, and I think this actually happens in the Chronicle. I can't remember the page. That means Zodiac isn't front page news, right? That and Zodiac has this whole the whole period which is really the classical zodiac period of so he sends the first letters on july 31st 1969 they that those contain three different parts of the first cipher they get solved august 9th that's when everyone finds out sharon tate is dead um, Manson isn't arrested until maybe December 4th. Everything that is really sort of the classic Zodiac period where he is killing people still, where he is dressing up in a fucked up hood, where he's shooting a cab driver in San Francisco, where he's sending in a second cipher that didn't get solved until 2020. All of that is happening in a moment where all anyone cares about is who killed Sharon Tate. And every single day, there is gonna be a story in most newspapers about Sharon Tate. And these stories are crazy, right? Like, cause yeah. no one knows who did it. So it's like, well, was it a black mask gone wrong? Was it a black, was it a, you know, like an orgy gone wrong? Was it yeah, a black yeah. mask orgy gone wrong? I mean, <laughs> it's, a, it's a really insane moment in American life. And what that means is like Zodiac is kind of an also ran during the period where people should be paying the most attention to Zodiac. Um, and I think that's a really, really important distinction to make because if you watch something like Fincher's film, you get the impression 
that this was this all-consuming moment where the entire Bay Area was on tender hooks because they were so afraid of everything. And I think they probably were, but I think it wasn't so much about Zodiac as it was Sharon Tate. It's right. almost like he was doubly frozen out, like first frozen out by the counterculture, then frozen out from the murder culture. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think, you know, and I think, again, this is a more, this is a, a less supportable assertion on my end, although I think it's a totally fair assertion. Probably, and I don't know what the right adjective is, so I will say iconic, although I find it really distasteful in this context. Um, the most iconic of the Zodiac murders is the only daytime murder that happens on September 27th, 1969. Zodiac goes to Lake Berryessa, which is a man-made lake, mostly in Napa County. And he wears a hood, he uh, ties up two kids, he stabs them, he, you know, the, the man survives, the, the, the woman does not, and then he goes and he writes a message on the door of uh, the male victim's car. The thing is, that's, it's hard for me to see how that isn't really influenced by the coverage of Sharon Tate, right? Because that's every, oh, and, and the subsequent La Bianca murder, because that's every major detail of those murders. It's people being stabbed, people being tied up and writing on a door, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, the hood, there's a hood in the Tate thing but it's a little weird with Zodiac because he thought he killed them both, right? Um, he makes a phone call immediately after being like, I just, I just stabbed two kids at Lake Berryessa. So the thing that has become the most visually iconic aspect of Zodiac, which is a guy in a hood, no one was ever supposed to know that it happened because the two people who saw it were supposed to be dead. What that really leaves you with is stabbings, writing on a door, and people being tied up. That's, that's the Tate murder. Yeah, but it's almost like at that moment when, what's the victim's name who, who lived? Um, Brian Hartnell. When Brian Hartnell lived, it's almost like within that moment is when the Zodiac perfected his character. And he yeah. became this person that I feel like is almost like an inversion of the American dream or the American promise where you can become famous in the press and just live out this imagined life without right. having to go through the hardship and rejection <laughs> yeah. of being an actor or a writer or whatever, an artist. He did get to cut the line. Well, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about that is he doesn't actually write a letter after that attack. Um, and then he then does the shooting of Paul Stein, who's driving a cab in San Francisco, and he sends in a letter on October 13th, 1969. What happens 
up until this point, up until October 15th, 1969, Zodiac is such an also ran that the papers aren't even calling him Zodiac, despite multiple letters saying, this is the Zodiac speaking, right? Um, what they are doing, or maybe one letter, I can't remember the timeline right now, but in any event, he has named himself. The papers consistently refer to him as the cipher killer or the cipher murderer or whatever. Um, on October 15th, this really crazy thing happens. The Chronicle publishes the details of the letter that he sends after he shoots Paul Stein and totally disconnected from this happening. The Los Angeles Times, which in that moment was essentially the West Coast equivalent of the New York Times, although the New York Times wouldn't have agreed, um, but it was the most prestigious journalistic outlet in on the West Coast, hands down. They run a huge article, which has clearly been in prep for about a week, apparently without any knowledge that another correspondence has just come in, being like, no, the Zodiac is real. This is a, this is a real thing. This is happening. And then suddenly, this is the birth of Zodiac. Um, and you can see it because there are two newspapers in San Francisco. There's the Chronicle and there, there's the Examiner. They are in a joint agreement where the Examiner is the afternoon paper, the Chronicle is the morning paper. So when the Chronicle is reporting <laughs> on getting this letter, the word Zodiac is mentioned, but it's buried really deep down in the article. The headline or whatever is still about the cipher killer. By the time the examiner runs its article on the same letter, everyone's seen the Los Angeles Times. And suddenly the, the examiner is like, Zodiac sent in another letter, right? You can, you can literally, it's, it's a really unusual thing where you can literally see the exact moment where a media narrative is born. It's like this moment that's another one of these like two perfect coincidences in history that I read somewhere at the, I guess, 1893 or 18, I think 1893 Chicago World's Fair. In the morning, uh, Turner gives the frontier thesis, right? When he says the frontier is closed and you know there's no more land to be taken and so on. And then in the afternoon, Edison debuts like the kinetoscope or one of the <laughs> earliest Nickelodeons with, of course, footage of a cowboy on a horse. So they say like in one day, the West ended and the Western was born. Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, it's the same. It's a very similar thing. And, you know, I think getting to the point that you made. Yeah, I mean, the way that I think about Zodiac is almost as like a proto mass shooter um serial killers i mean technically he definitely meets the criteria for being a serial killer there's no question of that but i really think like if you think about a mass shooter now and unfortunately well, maybe not now, like a mass shooter five years ago, because mm. I think 
I think the genre has evolved, sadly. It really um, has. Yeah. It's, yeah. That, would itself be an interesting follow-up question. But if you think about a mass shooter, certainly after Elliot Roger goes mm. goes to and shoots up Isla Vista, that's a template. And the template is like, this is a person who goes and kills a bunch of people. And then we all find his writing and his digital footprint. And we try to make sense of what this is. Zodiac's like someone who did it in slow time and incorporated the manifesto into the crimes. When you were looking at all of this media from that time, was there anything that I'm just, I wonder if it was all just kind of written in this very factual way, or was there any evidence of the media starting to see him as this inherently American figure, this killer who wants the illusion, fame, and the violence. There are there's people who speculate about his motivations. Mm. Um, interestingly, the thing you see the least is people speculating about his motivations in terms of media. Huh. What you see is like he's a sexual degenerate, he's illiterate he's this he's that he's the other thing he's a mad occultist etc etc no one's really thinking about it in terms of he's doing this for media coverage and has anybody since or before not only controlled media in the way that he had but also became media itself and i don't mean like media as in like the news but like what it what the zodiac killer is now which is just like paperwork and ideas and 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 rabbit holes and different threads and all these perspectives like has anybody come close to that before or since that you know of i mean there were other killers who had a media i mean probably the 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 grandfather of this idea is uh jack the ripper but the weirdest thing about Jack the Ripper is, as far as anyone can tell, with the exception of maybe one letter, all those letters weren't real. They were just like either journalists making it up or people being like, hey, I'm Jack the Ripper. Um, that's probably the biggest, but it's much more complicated because it's not like the letters are coming from the killer himself again with one exception i think the god what the hell is it called the um i mean there were other murderers who had it who after jack the ripper realized oh i can write letters um most of them got caught or most of them weren't happening against a backdrop that was inherently interesting. Like um, there's a there's a guy I think who's called something like the the Toledo. I can't remember some kind of like torso killer or something mm -hmm. who wrote letters. Um, but you know, but I mean, one of the things that again has to be emphasized is by 1970. Say okay, by 1980 right? Like, and this is, that's a generous estimate. Nobody's thinking about Zodiac 
Zodiac as this media phenomenon is entirely a byproduct or the, uh, the media phenomenon that you or I would be familiar with is entirely derivative from the publication of Gray Smith's book. Like you can go and look in the, you know, and because these papers are online, it's actually pretty easy to do. The Examiner and the Chronicle don't mention Zodiac for a very long time before Gray Smith's book comes out. And even after Gray Smith's book comes out, it takes a little bit of time to pick up steam. I would say by the time you get to maybe 95, maybe a little bit earlier, then Zodiac is really what we know. But it didn't exist before Gray Smith's book. I mean, I think there's something interesting when you talked about you know, these era shifts or, you know, when you mentioned Jack the Ripper, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I've seen your videos with Alan Moore, you know, and the way he talks about Jack the Ripper kind of birthing the 20th century, you know, and from hell, and maybe, uh, you know, Zodiac is sort of in this cusp between the 60s and the 70s or between, you know, yeah. the, op- the optimistic phase of, you know, the new age or the age of Aquarius or something, and then just Reagan and Nixon and, and just, yeah, you know, yeah. all, all the president's men and the parallax beer. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. I mean, I, but I think what's interesting about that shift, and I don't, and I don't actually know the answer to this. Um, I'm not sure people were aware that shift was happening. Maybe they were by the 80s, though. Right? But oh yeah, probably by the 80s. By the time Reagan gets elected, yes, clearly something has changed. Um, I'm not so sure people people knew something was wrong in the 70s and they had theories about what were the causative factors of that. Did they really know? First of all, there's a whole other question. Did people even believe the story that we are told about the 60s of like, it was full of optimism and new, I don't know if people actually believed that, but assuming that they did, and I, and I think it's probably pretty fair to say that at least some people did. Uh, did people understand that the 70s was like this kind of dark farce version of the 60s? I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know. I mean, I can tell you if you look through material, and I haven't obviously read every single thing written in the 70s, looking back at the 60s, People know something's changed. I don't know if they know that the whole era has changed. But that being said, yeah, I think you can totally see Zodiac as, as, a, as, as a transitional figure. I mean, it's probably better. It, you know, if you're going to be a diabolical creature of imagination, it's probably better to inaugurate the 20th century than just one really shitty decade. <laughs> <laughs> you got to settle for what you can get. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, you know, if you if that's all you can get, a day, a decade's not so bad. <laughs> they don't come cheap. <laughs> but do you also think that maybe, and I, I, this is more of a personal question, but do you think the correlation between our current moment, which obviously this, this term, the vibe shift is being thrown <laughs> around a lot, but you did happen to write a book about the Zodiac Killer during this time. 
a new Batman movie came out where the main mm-hmm. villain is modeled after the Zodiac killer. Do you think there's some correlation to where we're at now and where America was at the, in the oh, late 60s? Not so much the late 60s. I mean, 1970? Okay. Sure, sure. I mean, there's this really strange thing that has happened in the American imagination where, for pretty obvious reasons, <laughs> n- 1968 is seen as like this, as like the, the, the real worst moment in American life. Um, the first half of 1970 was so much worse than 1968, but it's not, with one or two exceptions, it's not a period where there are really definitive visual moments or concepts that you can be like, okay, well, they shot Martin Luther King Jr. They shot Bobby Kennedy. There was the Democratic National Convention, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, like there, you know, like Mad Men season six, where at the end of every episode, Don Draper is watching television and some other aspect of America has fallen apart. 1970, the first half of 1970 doesn't quite have that, but it is without question awful. It is an awful, awful, awful year that feels more like something like 2020 than 1968 ever could have. Um, And yeah, I, I mean, I think we are in a period that has a huge amount of resemblance to the, at least the first half of the 1970s. Right. Yeah. And I guess the, if in retrospect, you know, and it's certainly been mythologized, but the story we tell ourselves is like the sixties was some kind of, you know, upsurge of optimism and some form of, you know, like right. we talk about LBJ, you know, did, did achieve some things on, on civil rights, right. Even more than people expected. Yeah. Then no. the seventies was getting bleaker and bleaker. And then I feel like the era that forged the three of us, you know, being the eighties and nineties was the sense of like kind of stabilized, but this kind of grim sense of like maybe this is the best we can do right it was kind of anti-aspirational yeah yeah we did it 1999 it was it was it was where it was all happening yeah no but I mean I think that I think one of the things that gets lost in those narratives of the 60s is like the president got shot and then everybody watched the guy who seems to have shot the president get killed on television. Um, A lot of the optimism that I think people identify in the 60s feels to me a little bit like someone who has something really bad happen to them and then resolves that they're just going to be happy from now on. And they have that kind of like forced, we're still do, you know, like life can be good. Life can be good. Except right. like it. a story where someone's like still talking to the like skeleton of their dead spouse. Like, or something. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, and like Lyndon Johnson was an amazing figure who built on the things that King achieved, which he never gets enough credit for um, either of them actually. 
uh, and did get some crazy legislation through that completely changed the country. You know, a lot of the moment, you know, in my more cynical moments, I sort of think a lot of what is happening in American political life is a white upper middle class that can see that it is not going to have the same control over the country that arguably it has had for the entirety of the country. Although that's a little difficult because did the white upper middle class actually exist in an agrarian period? Who knows? Let's say it did for the sake of podcasting generalities. Um, (laughs) You know, it is really quite clear that the administrative class of this country is going to look radically different in about 15 to 20 years than it ever did. Um, And that literally comes back to Johnson, who passed, who shepherded through, I should say, because, you know, there were Congress people, uh, passed this immigration bill that suddenly removed racial quotas from how, who could come to the country. And that is this radical transformation of the country that has taken about 50 to 60 years to really see what is happening. But I mean, like, I couldn't have been in this country without that bill, because there was a quota on how many Turkish people could come into the country each year. And it was about 100. Uh, So like, you know, anyway, I think I've gotten off topic. That that seems totally totally right though, and the you know the idea of these like shifting moments and sort of also how you know mythic forces from the past circle back through or like come, mm-hmm. come home to rest or you know it's yeah. kind of like the way you're talking about the sixties yeah you know, it's like something James Elroy I feel like really gets at right or like this sense of you know those American tabloid books of like just what like how dark the stuff around Kennedy really was and like yeah. what it really meant that that happened and I remember yeah, yeah. asking asking my dad. You know, I went to Dallas this year and you know, I read Libra and I did the whole tour, you know, which was great. I actually, it was an interesting experience. <laughs> and but I asked my dad what it was fun. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I asked my dad just, you know, what was it like to just watch that on TV? And he just said, you know, it felt like they killed Superman. And before right. that, we didn't think he could be killed. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the, tra- I think the trauma of that has never, never gets, put it this way, within about a year, you have the free speech movement in Berkeley, which is a completely new looking thing um, that arguably sets off everything that we think about when we think about the California 60s. Um, It's hard for me to see how that happens without this trauma that completely rewrites the sense of American possibility. Yeah, it was really interesting reading in Dealey Plaza, you know, in the um, book Mm. depository, there's all the coverage of the day, actually, like you were talking about, you know, reading things from that moment. And it's interesting that it's almost like the same discourse of the coasts versus the center right now as then there are all these articles from the New York Times being like, (laughs) 
basically like our guy, you know, our, our sort of Boston, you know, super mm-hmm. elite guy uh, gunned down in the Wild West. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, totally. I mean, it was 100% like this could only happen in Dallas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting is that kind of archival juxtaposition will not be possible about this moment, right? Like if you go and look at old newspapers, what, like the information has some utility, sure. Um, Mostly it's the holistic whole where you have, you know, you can, you give it about 30 years and you can see the angle of these stories and you can see how the stories are side by side. And what does that mean? And then like the advertisements often are much more valuable than the articles for really getting a sense of what the hell is going on because the advertisements are keyed to sort of the most base understanding of what human beings want, right? Right. Um, And you know, there are still newspapers, obviously, but I think everyone recognizes that the print legacy media is not long for the world. So we really will have a period where it's like the kind of archaeology that you can do in a book like Motor Spirit will be completely impossible about this moment. Yeah, I mean, did you feel that, you know, as you were working on it, which I assume must have been somewhat during the pandemic, did you have that feeling that it's sort of the impossibility of getting at, at this moment, you know, you could do through that moment? Yeah, I mean, I, I already knew that, though, because I, I did this, I mean, it's so weird. I did this novel called The Future Won't Be Long about the club kids in New York from, again, another 11-year period from 1986 to 1996. And what I did for that was I had to read 11 years of The Village Voice. Um, (laughs) And that was when I really started to get the sense of like, God, this may not be possible. But that was almost 10 years ago. So like it, it has accelerated now, right? Like there will be a moment where, and again, the New York Times is not the most valuable for this because the New York Times has so much cultural prestige, et cetera, and like the cost of even advertising in it still is crazy. But there will be a point where the Times is not going to have a print edition. And then that kind of archival juxtaposition will not be possible. Right. And even now, if you look at pieces, I just say about advertising, but if you look at old web pages, the ads that it serves you now are still going to be different from the ads it would serve exactly. someone else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so a whole way of understanding a moment is disappearing. Um, not that anyone else does this, but theoretically, someone else could do it. <laughs> um, and it wouldn't be possible about 2020, right? Which is, you know, I think most people would 
pretty much argue is one of the worst year, years in American life. Um, you can't, you won't be able to do that about 2020. I know what you mean, but I guess it'll be one of these things like once we've accumulated enough, not just media about 2020, but media around 2020, mm -hmm. like how the the evolution of pop-up ads have changed and kind of right. following like everything around the periphery. But I also kind of want to use this moment as a way to maybe transition to the second book in this sure. series, which is called How to Find the Zodiac. And I wonder if it was with this book that you found some sort of trail of crumbs that you made you realize you're like, I'm going to dedicate my time to writing about this subject, or did it come before that? Uh, no, I mean, how to find Zodiac is an accident. Really? I, yeah, I, I will tell you how to find, <laughs> how to find Zodiac is in many ways, the book I didn't want to write. It's pretty bold. I was really surprised you did it. Like it's, it's awesome, but it's crazy. I cannot think of anything more boring than that, than doing something like that. Right. Where how many people have identified some figure from the past and been like, here's the, like, uh, let me say it a different way. I don't actually care about the mystery of Zodiac. Um, and when I was going into writing Motor Spirit, the whole idea was to use this guy, Richard Gajkowski, who I had, whose name had been brought up by people, but who I had decided probably wasn't Zodiac. Like the whole idea was, and, and Gajkowski did not survive to the final edit, um, but the whole idea was to write a true crime book where you had a suspect that you knew wasn't the person who did it. <laughs> and to not bother yourself with any of the things that tend to happen with Zodiac books of like, well, now I found this guy and let me prove it and all of that shit. I, I had no interest, you know, like it's, it's a comp, it's a complicated thing to have done given what I just said, but that's true. <laughs> I really, really didn't want to do it, but what happened, you know, as, it, as is recounted in the beginning of the book, I was trying to do some research for the book. I asked a friend something, he said something. I did a Google search. I came up with this result of, a, of someone's name and then I couldn't let it go. Um, because, and the reason I couldn't let it go is because I kept examining more and more and more, trying to find something that would exclude. And I just, the more that I found, it kept including. Um, and that is, you know, I mean, you get to a certain point and I'm not sure what else you're supposed to do with it. Yeah, and do you think it's because you were writing this literary version of a true crime book about the Zodiac Killer that you were able to maybe locate the wavelength of this person that you potentially identify as the Zodiac, who is also a bit of a book nerd. Like yeah. there is a common language there that made it interesting for me as well as a reader. 
I mean, I can, t I can tell you what I think is probably the most dangerous cognitive bias in how to find Zodiac, which Jeez. is, I had written almost all of Motor Spirit by the time that this happened. Mm -hmm. And I had formed theories, which I think are completely supportable from the letters and from the references in the letters as to who Zodiac probably was. So if you then find a figure who pings off all of these things, you are in a really, you know, you, you run the risk of being like, well, of course this is him, but you're the person who defined all the terms by which you would find Zodiac, right? Like mm. if, you're the, if you're the person who writes out all the theoretical criteria and then you find someone who meets those theoretical criteria, what faith can you have in yourself as the person who created those theoretical criteria? Okay, everyone, everyone finds their own Zodiac. Yeah, exactly, right? Like that is a real danger. I mean, I think anyone who reads the book will see that one of the things that I try to do is constantly undercut that and constantly, constantly exist in doubt, right? Because right. I, I don't think certitude is anyone's friend in this at all. It's certainly not my friend. And I can tell you with all honesty, I have no idea if this person is Zodiac with like the kind of certitude that other people would have. I don't have that. What I have, what the book makes is not a not an art, not an argument of certainty, but an a probabilistic argument, which is very different. And which I had actually I actually wish I had mentioned in the book because I, I think as a writer, what your main responsibility, and I mean you can never fully do this because how can you imagine everything but I think as a writer your main responsibility to the reader is to make sure that if if you are writing a book that everything they need is in the book and explained in the book right um and not explaining probability <laughs> might have been a flaw in the book but I think you did do that by making it third person Right. Like I feel like that's a very subtle but accurate way to get all of that across. And you do have those moments of of doubt where you mention like what you as the character was thinking and doubting. So I, I found that to be really compelling. Yeah, well, I mean, I think anyone who's not filled with doubt when they're dealing with something that they, you can know what you know, and then there's what you can't know. And anyone who's not filled with doubt about what they can't know, should, particularly on something like this, should not be trusted. And so the book, <laughs> the book constantly is trying to undercut me. It's constantly trying to undercut the theory. It's constantly trying to undercut the identification. It's constantly offering other ideas about why this might be wrong. Right. And it also undercuts the true crime genre, which I think it's in some ways is its biggest crutch and maybe its biggest hurdle. 
And I'm assuming most people that are going to read this, maybe not, but I mean, I, I know a lot of people are going to read this that are true crime enthusiasts, people on Reddit that are going nuts. And I think they're going to be a little like, I, I don't know, I don't, I'm not going to say they're going to be put off, but I know they're going to recognize that there's something different in the presentation of the language in of itself and what that means. And I mean, those people, if their response is, fuck this guy, they're completely right. Um, <laughs> because, you know, like true crime is, for lack of a better term, it is mostly a working class form of storytelling, right? And there is a way in which you can see both of these books as an act of literary gentrification, um, where this is someone who's coming in with a series of aesthetic and intellectual concerns that maybe aren't appropriate for the genre, and then just sort of imposing it onto uh, one of the bigger stories within this this body of of of, of myth making and like you know you gentrification is not a bad metaphor here because if you think about people who moved into uh neighborhoods that were run down but had these charming period buildings and they come in and they restore the wainscoting and all of that shit like on one hand the restoration of the buildings are beautiful on the other hand it's like someone who has completely upended the neighborhood for you know essentially an externally imposed set of aesthetic concerns so yeah you know like they should say fuck you. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I just want to like circle back on this because one thing, you know, you mentioned that the true crime genre is this working class genre, which I do agree with that. But I also think that there's a false pretense with the true crime genre that there's an authoritative voice that is speaking facts to you. Oh, yeah. That to me always felt a little bit bullshitty about the genre, which made it in some ways... It wasn't like I didn't take it serious because I thought it was above it. I only like reading Brett Easton Ellis. It was more that I was like, well, how do I know that this is actually factual? Like it's like watching Dateline or 2020, like to what degree are these people journalists? So in a weird right. way, I almost found your take on it to be more authoritative in the sense that it did present doubt, did in fact remove the narrator to a certain degree from the perspective shift. And um I thought that was really smart. And I, and I do wonder if you feel similarly about true crime being seen as this um, voice of truth within literature. I mean, I don't know. Do people think that? I, and I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you. I actually don't know. Um, I guess they do. And yeah, I mean, I could never do that. That's, that's the basic answer which is the closest I could do to something like that would be motor spirit, right? But even I, there, it's pretty clear that this is a subjective narrator um, because most true crime is not going to spend, most true crime about, most true crime books about the Zodiac aren't going to title themselves after 
hate street slang for amphetamine psychosis and then spend two pages on like this horrible gang murder where that phrase appeared at trial like i think <laughs> you know like i think i think that it's pretty clear if you get about a third of the way into that book that it's not that narrator the authoritative narrator i mean i would say my biggest concern with the true crime voice and this might speak exactly to what you're talking about is <clears throat> there's a kind of embedded moralism in that voice yeah it's the good guy it has to be yeah yeah and and you know i find people much more complicated than whatever that voice presents and i also think there is a you know there's an unfortunate aspect to true crime where it is a way by which put it this way zodiac is an unusual true crime subject because zodiac there's not really any sex in it right none and, really and aside from the spaces that he went to to kill people exactly yeah imbued with sexuality but nobody yeah, was fucking yeah no but like there's no sense of zodiac of there really being a sexual element in those crimes if you think about someone like ted bundy clearly it's it's the sex the, or the sexual element that drives the bundy narrative right totally um, and like that to me is probably the most disquieting thing about true crime even if you think about something like in cold blood there that is a book that's really animated by Capote totally homoerotic as well yeah well, that's what i was gonna say it's like animated by capote's really homoerotic narrative um <laughs> and, and his genius maybe was to just lead into it to see that that was the narrative and be like all right this is what it's about. yeah 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 and i mean i like in cold blood i'm not yeah. i'm not shitting Likewise. On it, but but no i mean like i have a lot of issues with true crime but at the same time true crime ain't for me right like i am not its audience i am i am filled with a series of aesthetic and intellectual pretensions that i cannot rid myself of and i have to live with them um <laughs> you know and so like i said the books arguably are an act of gentrification i mean maybe one way to consider that idea whether mm -hmm. you call it gentrification or pretension you know in the, the positive sense of the term is like if you're writing at that register let's say the thing that you're certain about is the uncertainty right or the ambiguity yeah. is what you're reifying whereas if you're doing the more working class version of you know same in fiction if you're you know john grisham or stephen king or something mm -hmm. is much more you know it's it's tangible it's sort of the thing that you get is that not only is there a morality among the characters in terms of people being good or bad, but there's a kind of inherent morality in the universe of being like knowable on some deep right. level. Right. And I think the thing that gets us off is always that the universe is fundamentally unknowable. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that's a really succinct way of, of saying it actually. Yeah. You know, everything is unknowable, but there are some things you can know, you know,
Right. And you can know, I remember Eisenstein wrote this book about Walt Disney during the depression. And he kind of said that, that he's like, you know, I find Disney too simple and kind of, you know, reductive and condescending. But, you know, if you're living through the depression in America and you're broke and you're trying to care for your kids and you have like one nickel to take them to see, you know, Snow White on a Friday night might be like a pretty good thing to do. And to say that, you know, you should have taken them to exterminating angel instead <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's maybe pretty unfair <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i think that's right yeah i'll take i'll take that comparison <laughs> i think it's a pretty good one but i don't know how much you want to like show your hand here but i do want to know like how did you zero in on the suspect that you wrote about in sure. how to find a zodiac yeah well i mean let's let's name the guy because yeah keep, let's do it we keep dancing around it and that's weird um it's a guy <laughs> it, it was a guy named paul door who lived in the north bay he worked in vallejo um he seems to have spent his entire life writing letters um or publishing his own fanzines or magazines depending on the period some of them seem to have been on microfiche which is, you know, because mim- mimography wasn't marginalization enough. Um, he, had, he had to get onto microfiche. Um, but I was looking for a reference. A friend of mine said something. I Googled fanzines Vallejo and the science fiction fanzine from 1970 came up as the second result. And in it, Dor has this letter that is pretty Zodiac-esque. Um, and the thing about it in particular is he has this idea that everyone should start using one-cent stamps on their envelopes as some kind of punishment to the post office. Um, I don't fully understand the logic in that, but it's a short letter. Um, But the thing about it is that fanzine was dated January to March, 1970. From contextual references in it, you can tell that the letter was written more or less after Christmas. And there's a Zodiac. Zodiac sends a letter on December 20th. 1969 to Melvin Belli, who is a lawyer who's sort of the most famous person in San Francisco. And all of the stamps on it are one cent stamps on the envelope. It's like six one cent stamps. Now, I'm not crazy. So, so <laughs> I didn't look at this and be like, this is Zodiac, you know, like I'm not insane or at least not in that way. Uh, but it was like, well, that's really interesting. Not thinking he's Zodiac, but thinking like, well, it cannot hurt to investigate more. And what I do is I start digging up. And by digging up, I mean, finding on like archive.org and this website called fanac.org which has all of these old science fiction fanzines that they've slowly been scanning. Um, Finding more and more of Doors' 
writing. And someone had written something about him in 2015. They did not really examine anything except sort of the stuff he had written in the 80s, because that was the most easily available at that time. Anyway, it becomes very, very clear pretty quickly that there's something here, but I still don't think this is Zodiac, right? I mean, arguably, I still don't think it's Zodiac, but more so than I did then. Um, and so I was just like, well, I guess I should research this because even, you know, no one's looking at this stuff and being like, oh yeah, this guy's Zodiac. But it did seem like if you're writing a book about the period, a guy who seems to be writing a lot and publishing a lot, that is a kind of unauthorized view of the moment of 1970, of 1971, or 1968, or 1969. And so, you know, I figured out how to get some of his self-publications. And the, fir the first one that I get is a copy of this thing called Habitalia Number no. 1, which is a J.R.R. Tolkien fanzine. And, you know, I'm like going through it, and it's like, well, this isn't much, really. And then I get to the last page, and there's a cipher on it. <laughs> um, yeah, like a cipher that he wrote in Tolkien's Surf alphabet, which is a, you know, like this is nothing near the complexity of any of the Zodiac ciphers. And the but you have to think about it in terms of this which is i think at this point and at this point i mean like 2021 when i'm doing this most people have sort of come around to this idea that zodiac was from vallejo or somewhere in the north bay rather than being someone in san francisco right um, and there's a bunch of reasons why not really worth getting into. This is a thing that Door sent to mailed two days after Zodiac sent the Z13 cipher. And, you know, you have to imagine like these are two people, you know, the only two people who are issuing ciphers in that week in the North Bay our door and Zodiac for print publication anyway. Um, and so seeing that it was sort of like, well, I guess I should do, I guess I should do more research. And again, the idea behind all of this was how do you exclude this guy looking for something where he says, oh, I was out of town this week. And I mean, this sounds crazy until you realize how much Dor was publishing and placing classifieds and writing letters to publications in the time, or at the time, rather. Um, 
and just going through, you know, like there's an appendix in the book and the appendix has something like 400 classifieds or letters or whatever that door had written, just going through these things, trying to find something that would exclude him, right? And chasing this to totally absurd ends, you know, like uh, an ex of mine had to, had to go photograph copies of this libertarian publication from 1973 in the library uh, at the University of Michigan because I couldn't find copies of, any, of it anywhere else. You know, and just going through the stuff and consistently not finding anything that excluded him and consistently finding things that really included him. Yeah, and tell me about his background, because one thing that I found to be really compelling about him that ties into our current moment is that he was a comic book nerd, but he was also a right-winger. And what was he involved in? Was it the Minutemen? Yeah, well, you know, it's a complicated thing. Um, he definitely seems to be a comic book nerd, which is of some import, because one of the last... One of the last Zodiac correspondences has a quotation from the cover of a really obscure comic book. And this is in a moment where there's probably about 2,500 comic book collectors in the country, right? So even putting aside the question of door, if you assume that this thing on the back of one of these Zodiac correspondences is quoting from a comic book cover uh, published in 1952, you suddenly have reduced who Zodiac can be by an enormous scope because there's, the number I've seen, which I don't trust, is there's about 2,500 back issue comic book collectors in America, the entire country in 1970. Uh, I think for the sake, you know, for the sake of inclusiveness, you could probably double that to about 5,000. You could even double that to maybe 10, that number to 10,000 if you're really trying. Still a workable number. Yeah, but it's still, and particularly if you think this is not a number that has a huge amount of, this is, this is not, you know, this is 10,000 people for the whole country, right? We're talking about at most the Bay Area, how many back issue comic book collectors are there in the Bay Area? Now there's gonna be more than somewhere like, I don't know, somewhere in Alabama, but it's still a limited number of people that you could possibly be talking about. So yeah, there's that. And then like Dora was a weird guy, man. He was a really smart guy. And I don't know if he was right wing, I mean, some places he really seems to be right wing, but then some places he's, you know, and like he was, you know, in the FBI files on the Minutemen, they have a membership list in Doors' name and address. His post office box in Vallejo is on that list. And that's significant because the, <laughs> the Minutemen are 
you know, the Minutemen are not that different from what we would sort of think of as like right wing proud boys. Yeah. Who like to dox people on Twitter. Right. The minute exactly. the Minutemen have a magazine called On Target. And the whole point of it is to just give the addresses of liberals and communists and fellow travelers and like people who work for, I don't know, some whatever you would want to imagine uh, being at the time and just being like, yeah, you should send them a lot of letters. And with one cent stamps. Well, they don't say that. No, they, <laughs> no, okay. no, but the Minutemen seem to be mostly presidential stamps in their hate now. Um, but anyway, <laughs> but, but no, like the, the thing about the Minutemen that's of some importance is Zodiac uses the symbol that has since become known as the Zodiac symbol. Uh, it is, as far as anyone can tell, it's just a crosshairs through like a, a rifle scope. Um, calling it the Zodiac symbol is a little weird because it actually predates when Zodiac starts calling himself Zodiac, but for simplicity's sake, it's the Zodiac symbol. The thing is the Minutemen were sending, (laughs) sending out hate mail anonymously that used the same crosshairs symbol on their things. And if you read the Minutemen literature, it's kind of like an instruction manual on how to be Zodiac, where it's like, you know, there's instructions to people about like what guns to use. And of course, one of these is a gun that Zodiac seems to have used. Um, You know, there's instructions about like how you should go to post offices and post office boxes that aren't in your neighborhood, which of course seems to be exactly what Zodiac did, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, like Dora wasn't, I mean, I don't know how, if he was like a member in good standing, but he was, you know, the FBI found a, a list of Minutemen of the entire membership and Dora's on it. Um, but it's complicated because while he will occasionally say really weird right-wing things or just things that, like, you know, in one of these fanzines he publishes in 68, he's really into George Wallace's presidential campaign, which I think probably is about as right-wing as you can get in 1968. At the same time, this is a guy who is like really into a bunch of things that no one would associate with the right wing of 1968, like aesthetically, counterculturally, you know, he's, this is a guy who's placing classifieds in the Berkeley barb and who in a couple of years will be contributing incredibly detailed letters about the occult to neo-pagan journals. So Dora's really weird. Like he doesn't make sense in his own moment. He absolutely makes sense in say 2021 when yeah. you have when you have a figure like the QAnon shaman, right? Like that or guy. The, or the Punisher's skull. I feel like that's like become a comic book symbol that's bled over into the far right and yeah. QAnon. It's almost the exact same yeah, but, mindset. Yeah, yeah. 
but like QAnon's really weird because QAnon is not <laughs> QAnon is not solely far right aesthetics. It's got a lot of weird left DNA in it. Not anything. Not like formally right, right left, but like you know QAnon. He- even the frog is just some guy, yeah, yeah. random guy's cartoon. Well, it's got like it's got like a freak quality, right? The same way you talk about the freak underground or speed free. It's got that just like zany kind of jagged left thing, right? But I mean, even if you think like the QAnon shaman is a really good example of this. And admittedly, not everyone <laughs> who invaded the capital was dressed like a kind of patriotic Viking, but he takes it to the to the furthest extreme where clearly this is a right-wing guy, but there is a kind of new age spirituality that permeates what he says and what he does that no one would associate with the far right in up until very, very recently, you know? Right. like Because well, it's like a far right that's not conservative, right? It's kind of weirdly like out there rather than ra- rather than like trying to lock everything down. Yeah, and like Door is something like that, right? Like he's a libertarian. Def- I, that I can say without any question, but it's a weird kind of libertarian <laughs> libertarianism that really has an eye on what hippies are doing and taking them seriously. I mean, it's part of, I, I liked when you talked about autodidacts and you know, he almost feels like a kind of outsider artist or like this, you know, yeah, probably yeah. exists in other countries, but it feels like a very American thing of lonely people, but like deeply invested in like all sorts of different media and, you know, and sort of using politics as a kind of aesthetic that they then mash up in their own, yeah. like very, very specific way. Right? I, I, well, I mean, you know, like this is a guy who grew up in the Great Depression, right? Like he was born in 27. And so most of his life as a child was the Great Depression. Um, And then in 60 something, he moves to California. And suddenly he's got this totally unexpected life. Um, And by unexpected, I mean, anyone who's growing up in the Great Depression was not thinking, hey, in 30 years, I will be solidly middle-class, right? I will own a home. I will have, you know, I will be able to own all of these things. And was he working on submarines as well? Yeah, as far as I know, he was at Mare Island, which was at, which was the uh, westernmost extension of Vallejo, and which, you know, in the Cold War was like insane in terms of how much money was going in there um but the i i think the point that i'm trying to make is like i don't think this is a guy who i don't think had the opportunities to get a formal education in terms of like nobody from wherever he was from in pennsylvania was going to harvard right that's just that did not happen then but you know, the mechanism by which our society sorts people clearly is still there, clearly still works to some people's benefits and to some people's detriments. And like, you can have this argument about the the constituent nature of that sorting mechanism, but the reality of it is every society 
has sorting mechanisms, one of the things those mechanisms are consistently terrible at is finding people who are really, really bright, but who are not from circumstances where they can be put into that mechanism and end up with one of the outcomes that we would hope if we lived in a fair society would be on the level with where their intelligence is, right? So Dora is a guy who can, Dora can understand anything, right? Like if you put information in front of Dora, Dora is so bright, he can absorb it and he can figure it out and he can do it. But because he was not part of that sorting mechanisms, more beneficial outcomes, he doesn't have the whatever that whatever those the, the sorting mechanism is whatever it does to you he doesn't have the, the he doesn't have the kind of inherited language that say an education in the ivy league gives you right and and he doesn't have the social connections and if you don't have those things and you're a really bright guy what the fuck do you do and his answer was to just write letters constantly and publish constantly. Yeah, and it seems like the beauty and the tragedy, again, is like America, on the one hand, excludes people like that and to its own detriment, you know, fails to find them. Mm-hmm. On, the, on the other hand, there is, you know, in this dark sense, but there's this kind of uh, mechanism by which they become infamous, right? And we're still talking about them today. Yeah. Assuming that door was Zodiac, right, that right. that would be correct. I mean, to sort of circle back, I kept trying to exclude him. And then I just kept finding weirder and weirder and weirder shit. Um, probably, you know, and this is actually a flaw in the book. I didn't write this right. In 1974, Door accidentally publishes a murder confession in in a neo-pagan journal. <laughs> wow. Um, and like the reason why I say I didn't write it right is because in my madness, <laughs> that revelation happens. There's then like a page, not a page break, but I I don't actually know what the term, like a widget essentially. And then it's suddenly, the book suddenly goes into like a 20 page dense history of libertarian underground publishing. Um, probably should have ended the chapter there. That would, be, that, that would be my advice to any fledgling writers. If you find a murder confession, that's probably where you wanna end the chapter. You may not, you may not want to then get into an incredibly dense history of offset publishing in amongst libertarians in 1964 but you know we do we do our best (laughs) but who knows though it might be the mistake that you know like the one crumb that's like left out that elevates this up into you know like whatever like the like the zodiac's victim that got away because 
you know, it's funny um, uh, reading this and, and just kind of knowing your work. It's like sometimes I think that the the Zodiac Killer was maybe the first self-published author that made it. Yeah, I mean, there's an <laughs> aspect of that, right? But other people published him, you know, like right, right. Those those newspapers couldn't get enough. I mean, there's a really amazing thing that happens, which. To my mind, the last authentic Zodiac letter is sent in March 1971 to the LA Times. And Zodiac writes this letter where he's like, yeah, I'm writing to you guys because you don't bury me on the back pages, right? Because the Times, anything Zodiac always gets a front page on the Los Angeles Times, whereas the Chronicle and the examiner in San Francisco are, mm, it depends on the context of what the letter is, right? But uh, heretofore, the Times has always put Zodiac on the front page. Zodiac sends them this letter, and I think they're so appalled that Zodiac notices this that suddenly for the first time in like two years, Zodiac is on page three, you know? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's, I mean, it's, it's hilarious. I mean, in a way it's awful, but it's also really funny because this Zodiac is a person, whoever they are, that is totally aware of how media coverage works. And then basically points it out to the newspaper that has done the most to really make Zodiac Zodiac. And then they can't put that on the front page, right? So they have to stick it on page three, which tells you a lot about the exchange and the interplay with the press and the press itself. Right. And that seems totally to have circled back around today too, right? Of this like growing distrust of like a centralized, you know, extremely uh, elitely educated press, right? And like growing like yeah. foment on all sides of, you know, we're going to say the things that you're either not going to say or going to bury on page three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's right. I was just going to say, it, it also reminds me of like when Trump misspelled something and it was, what was it, Covefe or whatever. Oh, and yeah. now he uses that as a I don't know, a rallying cry or the yeah. hashtag or something. It, it almost feels like a very similar in a way. Yeah, well, I mean, but that's part of a big thing of that whole, I mean, one of the things that someone is going to write a really good book on, and actually Angela Nagel's book kind of is about this, although it's not her entire focus. I think that someone could write an incredibly good book about how every aesthetic development on the right, the right of now, and by mm. now, let's say the last 10 years, every aesthetic development or aesthetic tactic of the right of the now originated with the left or the soft left, the liberal left, put it that way, where, you know, like when Trump Miss, and that's a really good example because when Trump misspelled coffee, suddenly every liberal on Twitter couldn't, and celebrity and everything, 
couldn't stop tweeting that misspelling. And it was like some kind of indicator of how he was unfit to be president. I mean, if that's what you need, fine. Right. <laughs> right? If, if, that, if that's what sold it to. That's, yeah. yeah if that's, that's the hill you want to die right. on. All right. Let's exactly. go for it. But it was originally an insult. And then as seems to happen constantly, the insult gets reappropriated. And now Trump is using it to promote truth social, right? Or yes. like, you know, like one of the things that I think is almost impossible to remember, fake news, just the phrase fake news, that didn't come from the right. You know, I got that, that came from the left. I got into an argument on Channel 4 News in the UK because <laughs> they invited me on. This is like in the I Hate the Internet days where they, the media was like in some kind of delusion about the idea that I would become, I don't know, some kind of like prophet of why I thought Mark Zuckerberg was a dick. Um, and so, you know, Almost immediately after that election happened, this phrase started to emerge of fake news, fake news, fake news. And I got invited onto Channel 4 to talk about fake news, but not from the perspective of the right, from the perspective of a kind of center left that was appalled by the idea that fake news had gotten Trump elected. And, you know, and this is not a statement about whether or not that's true. I don't think it is, but sure, I can see the argument, right? Um, and I sent an email back being like, look, I'm so left-wing that I think all the news is fake. I can't really, you know, like I can't come on and moralize about like how terrible it is that fake news got Trump elected, but they had me on anyway. And I just ended up in like this <laughs> argument with the venerable Jon Snow and a woman from the Washington Post. And it's just like, but you know, like very short. So that would have been maybe February, 2017. Very shortly after that is when Trump start saying fake news and it becomes this thing from the right but the center left created that right well even the same way like you know i grew up in western massachusetts in the 90s and even then the idea of like everyone can spell words their own way and like there's no right way to spell something that that you know, the, going back to Covefe, the idea that mm -hmm. you just like double down on some kind of error and now i feel like it's exactly the opposite right that the right has taken that up uh, yeah. you know, on everything, on alternative facts or on, you know, if you don't believe you should do this, you shouldn't do it. Or, yeah, that was totally the left that I grew up with, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, th I, I think that's right. And it's right. just, it's a really strange dynamic. Like the right in this country, particularly, is animated almost entirely by the left. Yeah. It, and it is so weird because there's got to be a, like, there's got to be a better strategy than just being like, well, here's the thing you can say for the next four years and say it better than we ever could. Well, it know? definitely seems like we've hit some sort of breaking point. I don't know what more they'll be able to take from the left. Like I feel yeah. like 
um, we've exhausted that tactic right now. Like, I don't know. I mean, maybe not. I could be totally wrong, but it seems like, I don't know, where, where do we go from here, especially if you're on the right? It seems like we're at a real watershed moment and what comes next is going to be very unpredictable. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, well, pardon the pun. I, I think, I think <laughs> but I, I, I would agree. I don't, I can't see what the future is on that. But I don't know, I never would have guessed in 2017 that people would still be talking about fake news. You know, like, I, I don't know, it's really weird. It's almost like a, like a repetition obsession where it's like the news became more fake the more it was called fake. Like right. Sort of like increasingly shed trust. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, well, I mean, it's an, it's an effective tactic, particularly fake news is an effective tactic because no one who has ever been the subject of media coverage thinks, well, that was accurate. You know, right. like there, yeah. there, there, <laughs> yeah. there, there is an inherent reduction in the mediums that you, if that is what you really want to engage with, you can pull apart anything, you know? Um, and I also think, because because the money has gotten worse in the production of news that there has been a kind of drift to more superficiality and if you're going to be superficial or the more superficial again it's really easy to point out how fake it is, you know, like fake news is an amazing tactic. It's just, you know, when it was introduced, that's not what it meant. Right. And amongst the Zodiac internet sleuths, sure. have you generated any kind of fake news shitstorm from writing this book? Like what's been the reaction with them? I, I don't think they've been paying attention to it that much. And I want to say, right, like a little bit, not a huge amount, um, but I think it's confusing. I think the book is just confusing, which is, and again, this is probably gentrification, right? To some degree. Um, there is a way that the Zodiac online people probably would have dealt with door that is really quite different than how I did. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not to say that they're wrong. It's just to say that they would have had a different tactic and also i would say most of those people are like fucking geniuses you know like none of these books neither of these books would be possible if there hadn't been a 20-year cycle of people digging up information and finding new things and finding this that and the other thing and sort of pointing to it i mean there's certainly people that I was in, you know, the book is dedicated to how to find Zodiac is dedicated to about seven or eight people, people like Tom Voigt and Richard Grinnell, who I think are really unacclaimed geniuses and don't get anywhere near enough credit for what they actually did, which was take a case that mostly existed in one guy's paperback 
and somehow totally democratize the information and democratize it in a way that I think is substantially different than a lot of the other online web sleuthing, you know? Mm. Um, Maybe in the early years, it was a little more speculative, but that's because no one had any information. You know, like these guys had to sort of put it all together. Um, And that's amazing. They're amazing. Uh, But yeah, I don't know. People have responded. I think it's a little confusing because these are people who really want to do research and the book kind of is an end run around a lot of that research by, by being so fucking exhaustive. Um, So I don't know. It seems okay. They, I, I haven't looked at much of it because it's, I don't like to look at anything really. (laughs) Um, But no, I mean, I don't know. There's an active thread on one of the things where people keep finding more door stuff and you know i mean it's mostly stuff that i found but there's a few things they found that i didn't um etc etc i was gonna say it seems like another really interest interesting facet of this time that on the one hand you know the paper trail is disappearing but on the other hand i think a lot of people are responding to like the shittiness of like the centralized parts of the internet, like social mm-hmm. media by doing their, you know, this is like the QAnon thing, right? Of like, do your own research. Right. But that idea of research as some kind of like holy engagement with the machine is really- Well, but I mean, I think that's why Fincher's film has come, you know, cause that film was not successful when it came out. It wasn't a total bomb, but it was not a successful film. I think that's one of the reasons why it's sort of as time has gone on become seen as you know probably the best American film of the 21st century because that's what the fucking film is about right like the film is about research about someone you know the fictionalized Graysmith just being lost in a web of information um and trying to get to the bottom of something which is now everyone you know which was not true in 2007 when it came out right i often feel like the best art and and maybe like critical works also either intentionally or unintentionally see a paradigm just Mm -hmm. as it's about to begin yeah. Right. So you have like the Truman Show or the Japanese movie Pulse, you know, some of that stuff like right around the millennium before we were fully in the, you know, yeah, in the yeah. Truman Show. You know, it's like in certain kinds of artists, they're not prophetic exactly, but they just see it in the earliest possible moment. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's that film. It's right. It's like three years early. That's the best way I can describe it. Yeah. And then it ends up being like how Jake Gyllenhaal in that film is different from where we all, I don't, I don't know how you could say he's different from what has become this real thing of exactly what you described. So. Have yeah. you, has Fincher read this by the way? Have you, have you uh, passed your books for David Fincher? <laughs> you imagine me 
as a man cloaked in enormous power. How the fuck would I get a book to Fincher? I don't know. Via Brett Easton Ellis. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I mean, I'm like like a person that Brett Easton Ellis humors, I think, you know. I love um, your interviews with him. I mean, that's actually how uh, I discovered your work. So, oh yeah. Well, no, I mean, Brett is an amazing person. He is an amazing writer, and I'm very grateful. But I don't, I don't have a lot of connection to anyone. I've sort of become like this weird island where the books sell, you know. But I, because of my complicated relationship to publishing. I'm a little bit on the outside of practically everything. Um, There are moments where I'm closer to the inside, but mostly I'm really not like, you know, Brady Sinellis to me is like an LA freak, which that's (laughs) what I understand. Like the actual LA industry people and all of that stuff, I, I have, no connection to that really every once in a while someone options a book that's that's about the closest that I get so no and I mean you know I when I did the books so I did a book about XXX Tentacion um called do everything wrong and when I did that book I didn't want to do any marketing for it like it still doesn't even have a web page right um because i i wrote it in a fit of irritation at the gloating after he died by people who should know better and i just want to preface that this guy was a rapper who was shocked he was very young and i would say he was like a uh, Gen Z version of Kurt Cobain or Tupac. Does that sound accurate? Yeah, I, more talented than either. But yeah, sure. And that's not to shit on either of those guys. Um, he, yeah, and he died when I think he was 19. And some of the things that people who really should have known better were saying when he died really annoyed me it was awful Uh, it was really disgusting yeah it was it was horrible in many different directions and i decided i through i'm going to try to make this as short as possible i ended up writing a book after being really annoyed and uh, (laughs) which is not an unusual circumstance um i then uh you know, like I didn't, I didn't want to do any promotion for it because it felt like exploiting his death, right? Like to be the person who's out there being like, hey, he died six months ago. Here's a book that I did, you know? Um, And it was probably the most interesting learning experience that I had as a writer slash publisher, which is, you know, there was no promotion for the book. I went on one podcast that was a friend's podcast and the book ended up selling a lot, like a lot, a lot, a lot in a way 
that most people in publishing, I think, would tell you was essentially impossible for a book that had no apparatus of publication, or sorry, of publicity, um, and, you know, had no outreach at all. It was like one podcast. And like, it ended up selling a lot. And it also, you know, it's been translated into something like four languages. Although all of, all of those translations were like weird um, pandemic deals. So I've never seen physical copies of them. Uh, can you just say a little bit more about it? Is it, is it made up of mainly his tweets? No, it's, it's a short narrative of his life using okay. his, well, when I got really pissed, I figured out a way to download all of his tweets into a spreadsheet. Actually, a friend helped me. And I was just reading it as a tonic to how irritated I felt. And what I ended up figuring out was like, this was a completely new document about a completely new kind of person because he had started a Twitter account when he was about 14, right? And he died when he was 19. But up until about 2017, which I think was a year before he died, he was tweeting relentlessly. So it is a document of someone who starts tweeting before they, you know, when they're not, I, I, I don't think he was in extreme poverty, but he was in, you know, not the best circumstances in Florida. He was a kid from nowhere. He had no aspiration whatsoever. I mean, sorry, let me say that a different way. He had, this was not a kid who was like, well, in five years, I'll be world famous, right? And because he was tweeting so much, it's a document of someone going from a moment before they have any direction to starting to rap, you know, to starting to put their music on SoundCloud, to it starting to snowball, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a completely unique document of how someone ends up really famous with them tweeting about it. So, you know, like by the time I'd gotten halfway through, it was like, oh, this is the basis of a biography. Um, and this gets around a lot of the issues of, you know, like most of the reporting on him in his life was atrocious. It was atrociously bad. And some of it was him making shit up. Some of it wasn't, you know, but suddenly there was this realization that you could do a really accurate biography of probably the hardest thing there is to do a biography of, which is someone who's still essentially a child. Like there aren't good biographies of children for a reason, which right. is, it's not easy. Um, and so, you know, I wrote it and I was just, once I wrote it, I was like, I don't even know what to do with this. I don't want to promote it. So I just put it out into the world. And like, now I will say clearly 
having the subject be someone who is a world famous celebrity is going to get you some buy-in at the beginning. Um, it's not, it doesn't guarantee what was a pretty consistently selling book for about three years. Um, but it really revolutionized how I thought about all of this stuff, which is like, if you are a novelist, you're always gonna be on the back foot, right? As a novelist, there is an ask of the imagined audience to give a shit about another novel by another person they don't know, right? Mm. And that's a, that's a huge ask. And the readers aren't wrong, you know? Like there's this weird thing that publishing always does which is blame declining literacy skills on the failure of its own product, which is like, good luck with the future on that. Um, but that every book is going to end up selling basically what it, it was always going to end up selling. It might just be slower if there isn't publicity. But it also seems like you're, catching this like zeitgeist like at this very pivotal moment because even with this rapper what you were able to do with you know following his his twitter evolution from child to whatever superstar is that you found like the moment where his persona solidified because i was also following this guy and there was definitely like not definitely not as closely as you, and I haven't read the book, although I'm glad we're talking about it because I was very curious to hear about it. But there is, I think, this moment with a lot of SoundCloud rappers where there's the persona, there's the music, and then there's this moment where those two things come together into a form of theater, mm -hmm. and it becomes like the full package, and it's not something you can manufacture. I mean, you can try, but it's something that, like, especially in his case, came to be organically and it seems like you're very good at at catching on to those moments with a lot of the stuff that you've done i do by the way i don't necessarily recommend doing what i've done to anyone else um it is not the easiest thing to figure out essentially a totally different business model of of writing and publishing um but yeah, I don't know, man. It's just like you try to be receptive to what's around you and you try to see what's interesting. And I mean, I'm I'm perpetually exhausted by anything that feels old, you know, which is an interesting concern because it's like I'm getting older, you know, like when... When I did that book in particular, one of the things, as much as I just gave you like this high-minded explanation for why I didn't want to do promotion, you know, another thing was there was this real concern of like, what if I'm too old to do this, right? Like, I'm not like, what if this is like the book where you, fi you finally become the oldest guy at the punk rock show? You know, right, <laughs> right, like, right, right. You know, so I really was concerned that if the book went out there and it was bad in a way that I couldn't see, that would 
be really painful. And you'd have to talk about, you'd have to constantly justify fandom, you know, or they would be like, aren't you too old to listen to this? Yeah, exactly. But that doesn't seem to have happened, which is, which is nice. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I'm tired of the minute anything becomes rhetoric, it just exhausts me, you know? And like, I try as much as I can to avoid rhetoric as a topic or as a writer. Um, Cause I think, you know, one of the things that has not helped the country is the rise of rhetorical politics. I mean, there uh, politics have always been rhetorical but it seems like we're in a moment where that's really more prevalent than maybe it was, I don't know. In, in in the the recent past um and i think it's death for writers to be you know like the without naming names there are some writers who i think are very good writers who have twitter presences that i cannot understand (laughs) why why they would do this you know (laughs) like partly from a business perspective but partly also from like a human perspective like yeah but it's why put that version of yourself out there like yeah like no one needs tweet you know no one needs no one needs the writer who is supposed to be the person that is making books right in the most reductive sense of the idea of the writer i'm not sure anyone really wants that person's steady stream of retweeted dank memes about like why vladimir putin is a dick right right Uh, i was always wondering about vladimir putin i know who's just who's uh, feed to check out (laughs) yeah Yeah, right no like i i think i think it's a huge danger for writers right now oh it really is is. i mean i mean i guess you don't you shouldn't name names but i mean fuck that's like exactly what happened to stephen king for me like sometimes i'm like damn you were like such a fixture of my childhood i'm not like a Mm -hmm. huge stephen king fan now but it's just like shut the fuck up man like just do what you do best and what i think you're so good at that I think if anything listeners should take note of is to be really receptive to your limitations. Well, I mean, you know, like I had a really weird experience with I Hate the Internet where it was self-published is the word I use when I'm trying to be obnoxious. The model, (laughs) the model is not exactly self-publishing, but for the sake of, you know, brevity, you know, I had the self-published book that came out and that the media, you know, I didn't understand what I was doing when I was writing it, which is I was writing a book that expressed the anxieties of the journalistic and editorial classes. Um, And, you know, in retrospect, that makes a ton of sense, because who are the people who've been most screwed by the internet? Clearly, it's journalists, right? Like, if you were a journalist, not at the New York Times or the Washington Post in 1995, you would have 
you would have been set in what seemed like an ineradicable course of economic and positional security. By the time you get to 2005, people are getting laid off, right? Like journalism is radically transforming and it's transforming pretty much because some people in Silicon Valley decided that they wanted to do something different. And you can sit, you know, without sitting, without really opining as to whether or not that was good, that is a dynamic that happened. And so when I Hate the Internet came out, and again, it was self-published sort of, but it was really hidden then because, and that's how different it was, what, six years ago, that like the idea was, well, let's just make this look as much like a book that's coming out from a new press um, that no one, that no one's heard of, because then you can get some reviews on like websites that no longer exist in a book publishing ecosystem that's completely disappeared, right? Um, if I were doing that book now, it would be completely different because what that release was pitched to disappeared somewhere in the Trump years. It just disappeared. Um, so the book comes out, and within about a month, it is very clear that this has turned into something that I did not expect. And it unleashed about a three-year period of this kind of weird push and pull where the media, or not the media, that's too broad. People in the media who were really freaked out about what the internet uh, represented to them as essentially an existential threat to their business wanted me to be like their anti-Facebook Jesus. And, you know, like the book was mostly dick jokes. Um, it was other things too, but it wasn't what people wanted or it wasn't how it was being reported on. And to a degree that's unusual, no book is ever, the reporting on any book is never what a, the book is, right? Obviously, but it was a really unusual disconnect and there were an enormous amount of opportunities from it, some of which I said yes to, but the thing that I constantly was saying no to was turning into whatever Stephen King has turned into, you know, like this idea that the door was open uh, to me getting into a certain kind of rarefied media elite if I just you know, if I just would go on Channel 4 News and be like, yeah, fake news is terrible. It's a threat to democracy. 
Right, and be that guy. Be that guy. Yeah. Become like your persona or whatever. Yeah, become the anti-Facebook Jesus. And reassure the people who are afraid that their relevance is waning, that it isn't really waning. Exactly. And, (laughs) And so, you know, like the thing about it was I could just see how you became one of those people. Now, by this point, I was already really, really skeptical about all of it. And, you know, there's things I went along with. There's things that I did, sure. But I never fucking started tweeting about Trump, right? Which really, really is what I think people wanted. Well, it's like we want someone who's just going to make us feel like you know, he's on our side and that we even have a side <laughs> rather than just it's chaos, right? Put it this way. If you took the narrative, now, not now, but say in 2018, if you took the narrative tone of I hate the internet and the narrative techniques of that book and you just turned it into a short nonfiction book about Trump, that would have sold an unbelievable amount of money, right? Or an unbelievable amount of copies and made an unbelievable amount of money. Um, And yeah, I mean, I wasn't going to do that. (laughs) Right. I thought actually only Americans burn it in hell, which I guess was sort of what you did instead, (laughs) was was fantastic. That's one of my favorite of, of your book. No, thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, instead what I did was write a book that, starts with the tonality of I hate the internet and then slowly denudes it into a full-throated argument for Christianity, which, (laughs) you know, which, you know, is like, uh, that's a good career move. (laughs) (laughs) And do you have like a, a final destination or thing you want to accomplish with your Zodiac books? Because I imagine it must be somewhat frustrating that even if your theory is 100% right, it has to be siphoned through this network of other theories and ideas for it to be accepted as fact, which is not something that's going to happen overnight. Like, do you have an end game for that? That would be like pie in the sky? Uh, It'd be nice to be told I was wrong in a definitive way, right? Like, to the degree that I have seen people responding to it and saying it's wrong, which hasn't been a lot, by the way, it's been arguing around the center. Um, And, you know, like, make no mistake, being wrong about Zodiac is a much more manageable fate (laughs) than being right about Zodiac. If you're wrong about Zodiac, all right, you took your best shot, you fucked it up, like the 500 other people who fucked it up. If you're right about Zodiac, that then becomes a totally unknown property because nobody's ever been right. No, or no one's ever been confirmed, right? You know? No one's ever occupied the position of everyone else thinking they're right. Yeah. And like, I would be perfectly happy with being definitively proved wrong. Um, That probably would have to come from the cops. I don't, I don't, I don't know where else it would come from. 
Um, and that's not because I'm trying to create some like really impenetrable threshold of being disproved. It's because the sheer amount of research that went into the book makes it hard to see how the normal disqualifiers would apply. Um, so like with some Zodiac suspects, their names will come up and then other people will do research and they'll, you know, like they'll quite rightly point out, well, that person was in New York on July 4th, 1969, when Zodiac did his second attack. And that's a really easy way to be proved wrong. Um, with Door, that isn't there uh, because of how much he wrote and because of how much uh, he did. It's really cool in terms of self-publishing and classifieds and all of this stuff. And because of information that appears in some of these letters, it's really quite difficult to point to door and say, well, he wasn't here then because you can kind of track door, if not day for day, you can track him throughout the relevant period pretty well. And there's nothing that would exclude him on that basis. You know, I, I'll tell you what the actual, like beyond that, what I would, what I, in terms of an end game, I would like someone. And if you're, I don't know how many listeners you have, but if you have listeners who know people that are good with math and statistics, please listeners, go talk to your math and statistics people. I would like someone to tell me why the cipher shit at the end of the book is wrong. So to clarify for the listeners, there is through a really complicated thing. I came across something through Doors writing, which appears to be, well, it's certainly a solution. It's not necessarily the solution to the Z13 and the Z32 ciphers. And it is a solution in such a way that to my mind, completely precludes the possibility of randomness because it's replicable across both ciphers. But truth of it is, I hit my threshold on, of understanding because I'm not a math person. I'm not a statistics person. I don't know how you would like test the null hypothesis of that thing. It's beyond me. Um, I'd be happy to be wrong on that. And I suspect that I'm probably not, but I also suspect the process that you described of like, it has to filter through a lot of people before there's anything like a definitive answer to it is is there in microcosm but that's the best evidence in the book and sadly it's the most incomprehensible to 99.9 percent .9 of people 
if that's wrong, you know, I'd, I'd be happy to be proved wrong. That would, I, I, I mean, like the entire idea of imagining some world in which you're proved right, or at least the probability is proved right relative to the Zodiac. I don't even know what that is. I would be happy with a math person explaining why that was wrong in a way that actually engaged with the central arguments of the material there rather than arguing around it, which is what I have encountered. I've encountered a lot of tautologies of like, well, Zodiac wouldn't encrypt this because Zodiac wouldn't encrypt this. And it's like, that's not helpful, right? Um, so something like that, I would, I would be delighted by if actual math and stats people told me I was terribly wrong. They would, fr they would free you for, from it in that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very exciting cusp to be standing on. I, I know that we've taken a ton of your time, but can we end this on one final question? Sure. So you have a passage in one of these books about driving to Lawrence, Kansas to meet William Burroughs. Yeah. Can you please tell us about the meeting with William Burroughs and what was the question you asked him? Yeah, well, you know, I graduated high school early because I'd skipped grades. And, oh, you want to know what the stupid question is? God. I want to know the whole thing, but yes. Well, all right. All right. Well, <laughs> so I graduated high school and I was watching something and it occurred to me that Burroughs was alive, right? And that was a really strange thought because, you know, like at that time there was a lot of junkie chic. So Burroughs in the nineties was having a kind of late career renaissance, right? And like some of that, yeah. And like some of that was Kurt Cobain. Some of that he was, he was in a Nike commercial, et cetera, et cetera. Ministry, et cetera. drugstore cowboy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I asked all my friends, I was like, why don't we just go to Lawrence? Why don't we just go to Lawrence? <laughs> How hard can it be to meet him? It's a small town. And um, pretty much all of them were just like, go fuck yourself, except for my friend, Dave, um, who ended up being the person that, like, I, like it says in the book, sent me down this horrible Zodiac path in some ways. <laughs> and, you know, like I asked him and he was like, yeah, we should just do it. So we took the train uh, out to Kansas, which took about 36 hours. He had found some guy who said he was really punk rock on the Internet. But then when we got who was like, yeah, you can come crash at my house. But when we got there, he was just like the most normal looking guy ever. Like there wasn't a hint of anything punk rock about him. And that was fine, you know, like whatever. And then we spent a couple of days just like wandering around Kansas, trying to figure out where Burroughs lived, trying to figure out how you would go see him and failing notably. And then we ended up in a bar, which I was way too young to be in. And Burroughs' secretary, James Grarholz, was there. Ask guest of the show. 
Oh, really? Yeah. I actually went to Lawrence, Kansas in 2020, right when the pandemic kicked off to do a pilgrimage. And uh, I went to his house and interviewed him. No shit. Yeah. <laughs> How, how's he doing? Uh, he's doing well. You know, he was a great, the interview was great. Like it was yeah. amazing. Like he's a true performer and like character and it was everything I hoped it would be. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I know he had had kind of a rough patch in the 2000s. So it's really actually genuinely nice to hear that he's doing okay. Uh, Cause he was incredibly nice to us. You know, we just started talking to him in this bar uh, and God only knows what we said to him but he was like yeah you should come by on friday and oh my god I'm so fucking jealous it's awesome <laughs> so, <laughs> so i think that's what we did um although actually i think we no i think he wanted it's something like he wanted us to come but i had convinced because i'm an idiot i had convinced everyone that we should go out to the John Brown Museum in Osawatomie, which is near Lawrence. And it's like where John Brown during the border wars um, murdered all of his neighbors. And so while, and you know, and like nobody really has cell phones at this time. So while we're at the John Brown Museum, Grarholtz calls this punk rock guy's apartment and is like, well, you can come over now but we weren't there. So then I think we had to call and go the next day. Um, there's probably a moral in there, but what it would be, <laughs> I don't know. But so no, like we went over to Burroughs' house. We were supposed to be there for about 30 minutes. We ended up staying for about an hour and 30. And, you know, Burroughs at that point, he didn't have that much longer to live, but he was still notably himself and he was very nice to us i mean i'm sure he didn't remember us 20 seconds after we left the house you know like because I, I at that point he certainly was in you know like the grand old man of letters mode and when you are in a position like that you you know you just don't remember the people you meet that get brought into you. There's a certain way that you are. And it's not that you're ingenuine. It's just like, if you're Burroughs and you've, for the last 50 years, at least once a week, someone has come, you know, been brought to you because they, they want to sit at your knees and learn or something. You just don't remember those people very shortly after. Totally. And uh, being a lifelong junkie doesn't help either. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's that too, but I just, you know, but like, no, he was totally charming. He was really, really nice. And he put up with us and, you know, we ran, really weren't particularly stupid. So that was also nice. Um, I did ask one incredibly stupid question and then, you know, like we hung out. And it was cool. And then we took a picture and then we left. Oh, you're so, so fortunate. That's so awesome. What was the dumb question? Uh, I think, I think it was, I mean, it's so stupid that I am uh, <laughs> embarrassed now thinking about it. It was some variation 
because there was like an awkward silence for a moment. And like when you're young like that, those silences can really be, you don't realize that if you just wait, something will fill the silence. <laughs> right, right, right. And so instead you say like the first stupid thing that comes to your mind. And so I think I was like, gee, Mr. Burroughs, what kind of writers do you like? Oh, you know, gotcha. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like something something like that, but just like really awful. And it was like the, <laughs> the one sour note in the entire thing. And like to his credit, he answered it and then it just kept going. But it was so awkward and horrible. <laughs> I'm sure it's probably just only awkward and horrible to you, but I know what you mean I, I, about like just being like, so what are your influences? Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, that that's why it was so bad, right? Because right. I, at that point, you know, and I was not, you know, I, I did not have a full understanding, not that I do now, but I certainly had a less full understanding of human dynamic human dynamics but i understood that there was a way that like if you are going to be the person who is going to bring yourself to this other person there is an obligation on you to try to not ask these people the same five questions everyone asks them yeah because absolutely because otherwise you'll get the same five answers and this will be a 15 minute long meeting. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, it just was so awkward that I was like, uh, what are you reading? Or whatever the hell it was. It was horrible. It was almost like the terror that what you feel is a deeply specific and individual relation to them will in the light of day turn out to be just the totally standard relation. Exactly. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, with figures like that, the first five things that you think to ask them, everyone asks them this at least once a week, you know? And I mean, I understood that, but I just, I panicked, man. I, I, I just, I, I, the silence of it was so, <laughs> you know, so crazy. I, I will tell you one thing about that. And then we, we can sort of wrap this up. And this is a, this is a, this is a good way to end, I think. The, maybe not the night before, maybe the night, no, it would have been the night before because when we were talking, when we finally got on the phone with Holes, and he was like, well, you missed it today, but you can come tomorrow. He then mentioned he was going to go see Harmony Corinne's Kids, which I think was a quite an old movie at that point. Larry right? Clark's kids. Oh yes. Well, Harmony. Oh, Har Harmony, wrote, Harmony it. wrote it, but yeah, yeah. Larry right. Clark's kids. Well, who whatever. Can, <laughs> Come on. You know, sorry, a, sorry. The, no, no. Those, <laughs> it, it, it's very helpful for this interview that you know the different names of of different heads of the same Hydra, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> that's the least I can do, Jared. <laughs> yeah, I, I I apologize. I thought that joke would work better before it came out, but I didn't quite have a handle on the language. Um, so I don't know. Like I think the movie was really old, but maybe it was just getting to Kansas at that time, something like that. 
So my friend Dave and I are like, well, we should go see kids too. James Grarholtz is going to be there, right? I don't know if we were thinking we were going to hang out with him or anything. Um, so we do. We go to the same screening of kids. We speak to Grarholtz very briefly at this thing. And then we're just like, well, now we're, we're on the streets of Lawrence. Time to go back to this punk rock guy's house. Next day, we're in Burroughs' apartment, or his house, rather. And the topic of kids comes up. And, you know, Burroughs, I think, had seen some of the news coverage, which, you know, this is ancient history, but... At the time, kids was one of these things that was seen as like the utter decline of human society, right? Like everything's gone horribly wrong. Some kids are doing stuff in a film. Um, <laughs> and he was aware of that. So he, somehow us all seeing kids gets brought up and he turns to Grauerholz and he says something and this is, I'll try to do my burrows. He says something like, you know, well, I won't on the question. He says something like, what, well, what do these kids do, right? And Grauerholz is like, well, they steal some oranges, they steal a 40, and they beat someone up in a park. And Burroughs pauses, and then he says, that's nothing. Ha, 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 ha.